Welcome everybody to Wednesday night and uh, good to be together. Hope you're all having a good week so far, being encouraged and blessed and uh, we're going to be picking it up here tonight in Genesis chapter 33. So grab your Bibles and uh, make your way to Genesis 33. It's uh, a lot of fun to, to look at the lives of the patriarchs, and I'm so thankful that we have um, men like Jacob in the Bible, because <laughs> it reminds me a lot of you, and more so reminds me a lot of myself, and especially here tonight as we look at uh, the life of Jacob, and um, we see in this man a, a man uh, of dual nature you know a guy who's I believe desiring to walk with the Lord as we'll see here tonight but yet struggling with the flesh a lot and I read uh, in the life of Jacob and I see the things that he's done uh, and I just go man I see a lot of of me in that but I'm grateful and thankful that God chooses to work through men like Jacob. He didn't look at Jacob and go, man, this guy is disqualified. Like, there's no way I can't have a guy like that representing me and all through pages of scripture. And, and the life of Jacob is a life that we read so much about. We go from Abraham to Isaac, but Jacob just seems to dominate a lot of, a lot of pages of scripture. And yet it's a great encouragement, I think, for us. Now, where we pick it up here in Genesis 33 is, is Jacob is getting ready to meet his brother Esau. It's been a long time that Esau and Jacob had been together. And when Jacob left, remember Esau's attitude towards Jacob. It's like, that guy, he's a scoundrel, man. Jacob's got to go down. I mean, this is Esau's kind of desire. He just wanted to kill Jacob. And that's kind of most... Older brothers, I'm sure, had that kind of attitude towards the younger brother. But Jacob really didn't help matters at all. You know the story. So Jacob is getting ready to meet Esau. He's returned home from uh, Padan Aram, where he was in Haran with his um, with Laban, where Jacob has picked up a couple wives and uh, a couple other lady servants of of um, Leah and, and Rachel as well. And so he's coming back with a large group now. The family has grown. And so he's making his way back down now. As you can see on that map, Haran was way up top there. And he's making his way back down now, uh, close to Israel, where he's going to be meeting with his brother. And we saw last time that encounter with the Lord that Jacob had, you know, wrestling with God, probably thinking, Oh man, this is Esau. He's coming, he's found me, and now he's attacking me. He's like gonna take me down. He's wrestling, and he realizes, finally, this is the Lord God that he's wrestling with, and Jacob desired to receive that blessing. He wouldn't let go until he was blessed, but here was God bringing Jacob, in a sense, to the end of himself, and where he could find that dependence on the Lord, though there's still much work to be done in Jacob's life, as we'll see as we go through um, our study here tonight. But let's read to verse one. Genesis 33, verse 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. So remember, Jacob had sent kind of the envoys uh, of gifts to Esau first. He sent some people out to say, listen, I want you to go and meet with Esau and bring these gifts and then the next group will come and they'll present more gifts and Jacob's thinking, you know, by the time Jacob gets to me, he's going to be buttered up. He's going to be softened. He's going to be like, oh man, how can I get mad at this guy? He's blessing me. He's giving me all these gifts and livestock and such. So Jacob is looking to butter Esau up but now he looks and he sees Esau's coming with 400 men. It's like Jacob's looking out going, Esau's brought an army with him. Like, oh my goodness, I am doomed. I am going down. I'm sure Jacob is trembling right now as he's coming out to meet with Esau. It's been a long time. And you know, sometimes uh, time heals all wounds. And yet sometimes uh, time just allows those wounds to fester all the more if we are not willing to kind of give them over to the Lord and they grow and and things can become even more bitter and Jacob isn't sure what he's going to be encountering 
So notice what he does, he separates his family and you can see who he is really favoring here. He, you know, he puts the, the children with Leah, Rachel and the two maids, he puts the maidservants and the children in front, right? The kind of the expendables, sadly. I'm sure everybody's looking at, oh, thanks, man. I know where I stand now with Jacob, right? Then Leah and her children, middle, and then Rachel and Joseph last, the one that he loved and, and that one child he's had with Rachel, Joseph. So everybody's looking now and going, well, we know very clearly now who Jacob, if it wasn't already, you know, clear, now we know who Jacob is favoring, who he really loves. And not only that, that's just adding, you would think now, to the bitterness that the brothers were having towards Joseph and towards their father that will come out later on in the narrative as we go through Genesis here. They're beginning to see that they're a little bit expendable, whereas Joseph was the one that's protected because Jacob's thinking, you know, if Esau's coming against us, well, he's gonna hit the maidservants, the children, and Leah, but perhaps Rachel and Joseph will be able to escape. They'll get away and be protected. This is what Jacob is thinking here. So notice in verse three, then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So Esau's looking out, he sees Jacob. Now Jacob's, remember, he's coming, he's walking with a limp because the Lord had to touch you know, his hip and kind of put him in a place of surrender. And Jacob now, from this day on, would walk with that limp here and kind of leaning on that cane, in a sense, that picture of his need to be leaning on and dependent upon the Lord as all of us need to learn that lesson. And, and all through our study, we're gonna see how God keeps bringing Jacob to that place of continued dependence upon the Lord. So Esau sees Jacob coming with that limp now, something very different. But notice in verse four, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And it's, it's, it's almost like the same kind of imagery that Jesus used when he talked about the the prodigal son returning home and the father ran out to meet him, fell on his neck and kissed him. Almost like Jesus is recalling, you know, this very story right here. And in verse five, he lifted his eyes and saw the woman and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children and bowed down. And Leah also came near with their children and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So Jacob is, or sorry, Esau's just shocked to see, you know, all this company that Jacob's got. He's like, man, Jacob, you've been a busy man over these last 20 years here, right? Jacob's got all those family members. Of the, but then Esau starts questioning, what is, what is with all the, the company that he sent ahead of you with all these gifts? What is the, the purpose of that? And, and Jacob is saying, man, I just want to have favor in your eyes, Esau. You know, I just wanted you to be gracious toward me. See, Jacob is coming in a little bit of humility, maybe a little bit of fear. But notice there, it says that he came bowing down to the ground seven times. That was a manner that was fitting of, uh, you know, greeting a pharaoh, a king in this day. And so Jacob is really just humbling himself and showing this honor towards his brother Esau. But Esau comes running to embrace him. You know, we oftentimes never know what's really going on in someone else's life or in their heart until we go to them. Sometimes we delay, you know, dealing with someone or talking to somebody because we're thinking, oh my goodness, they don't wanna talk to me. They're gonna, they're gonna just be all over, they're gonna attack me, they're, they don't, they're gonna get so angry at me. They, we just sometimes think, I can't go to that person. But we never know what the Lord might be doing in that person's heart, let alone in our own heart. We never know how the Lord's been working and preparing their hearts for reconciliation. We're called to simply be a, a peacemaker, be a reconciler, and let the Lord take care of the rest. We never know what's gonna happen until we go to that person and Jacob is taking that right step and going to Esau, and yet he is now just stunned and I'm sure shocked with glee that he recognizes, man, Esau has let you know bygones be bygones. He's kind of put these things behind him now, it would seem. But Esau's questioning Jacob and almost gifts. Notice Esau's reply. He says, Jacob, I have enough. That's the reply of a contented man. 
He's not looking for how he can gain out of the situations. A lot of us would be like, well, Jacob, yeah, you really, you really kind of messed me up, man, and messed up what I was going to get. You kind of owe me, so I'm going to go ahead and take all these here. You, I, I deserve it, no doubt. And we can easily think that way, can't we? But Esau's not looking for what he can gain out of this situation. He's not trying to take from Jacob to make amends. He's good with what he has. And that's a wonderful place to be, isn't it? To not be looking at what you don't have, but thankful for what you do have. First Timothy 6, verse 6 is now godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, a great saying is as, as a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. And when it's cool, he wants it hot, always wanting what is not. That's how we can oftentimes live, right? We can live easily in discontentment, looking at what we don't have, looking at what others have and go, man, I, I wish I could have that. We get that and then we realize, and that doesn't really satisfy. I need something else. And we keep, and, but yet the Lord wants us to come to that place. You know, like Paul, where he says, you know, I, I've learned how to be in need, how to be in want, how to have it all. He's, he's recognized, I, I just want to be content in the Lord. Ultimately, we have all when we have the Lord. Reading on in verse 10, it says, and, and Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I've seen your face as though I'd seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. He's shocked at this. Please, Jacob says, take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And Jacob now says, because I have enough. So he urged him, urged Esau, and now Esau takes it. See, it was, was kind of customary this time to kind of go back and forth. You present a gift, the other person says, no, 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 I can't accept that. But deep down, they're like going, yeah, I really want that. That's mine. You know, re-offer that back to me. It's kind of a customary thing to do. Um, and, and perhaps Esau is just expecting this to come back to him, but nevertheless, I have enough. But notice now Jacob as well says, no, Esau, I have enough. But this time it's interesting because Jacob uses a different Hebrew word for enough that Esau used. In verse nine, Esau uses the word rab, which means I have much. I have, I have much. But now Jacob uses the Hebrew word kol, which means I have all. I have everything, I have all. See, Jacob is a man that has encountered God and he's now growing in this realization that God is the giver of all things and his satisfaction is to be found in the Lord alone. To where Jacob can say, I have the Lord and guess what? I have enough or I have it all. I've got it good. I've got the Lord with me and that's all I need. That's essentially what Jacob is saying here. And that's sometimes a long journey for people to arrive at, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Because we oftentimes search and seek for things that maybe will satisfy and we fail to see that God is all sufficient for us. And apart from him, we'll never know contentment. There will always be something missing, but God gives us the full and the satisfying life. Psalm 36, eight says, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Colossians 2, nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Meaning that we are complete in him. Jesus is it. When we have the Lord, we have everything that we ultimately need. We have, as Jacob could say, I have enough. I have enough. Have we come to that place where we can say, you know what? Oh, there's things maybe that I would like to have. I wouldn't mind having that. But we come to the place where we can say truly, I have enough. Because I have found the satisfying life in and through Jesus Christ. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I know where I'm going. I have enough. That's the place of contentment that the Lord would desire us to be. That's the place where we can truly experience that full peace of God. Hugh said in his commentary, Jacob's awareness of God and his grace is all over this Genesis passage. Now Esau had never once mentioned either grace or God directly, but Jacob references the children whom God has graciously given your servant at the end of verse five. 
He says in verse eight, that his desire to find favor and grace in the sight of my Lord. And again, he says, if I found favor or grace in your sight in verse 10. And finally, he says in verse 11, Jacob says, God has dealt graciously with me. You see what Jacob is doing? He's just continually putting the emphasis on the Lord and upon God's grace that Jacob has received. The same grace by which Jacob is desiring to extend to Esau now and the same grace that Jacob is thankful that he's receiving in and through Esau. But Jacob is recognizing this is all because of the Lord. And, and so Jacob is just showing that awareness of God throughout this passage here. Verse 12, we read, then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before a servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But again, Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. As we'll see, Jacob really had no intention of going with Esau, meeting up with Esau, ending up in Seir where Esau lived. At first, he gives a reasonable excuse, right? Oh, no, no, listen, my children are weak. The flocks and herds, they're nursing me. I need to take some time here and just kind of care for them. But I'll make my way. Like he gives kind of a, a reasonable excuse, but then he just makes kind of an outright lie, right? And saying, you know, we'll, we'll come later on here. But that was never Jacob's intention. And it's kind of another deceitful remark to his brother. See, Jacob still had a lot of work to be done in his life, didn't he? There's been some good Good trends in his life happening lately, but Jacob is still Jacob. There's still some of that old person there that you know God needs to work on, that Jacob needs to recognize, that he needs to surrender to. It's interesting that throughout the remainder of the Genesis account, we see him referred more to as Jacob than Israel. God had already given that name Israel back in, in um, Genesis chapter, oh, let's see, 28 when, no, where was it now? Genesis chapter 32. Yes, there it was, thank you. Right, oh yeah, just before our chapter here, right? When he wrestled with God and he called him Israel there. And so um, Jacob's needing to, to learn still how he needs to live in that new life as Israel more than that old life of, of Jacob. Now, J.M. Boyce says this, God had changed Jacob's name, yet although the Spirit of God superintended the writing in Genesis and all other canonical books, it is significant that from this point on in Genesis, Jacob is called Jacob twice as often as he's called Israel. When Abraham's name was changed from Abraham to Abraham, the second name was used consistently thereafter. But in Genesis 33 to 50, we find Jacob 45 times and Israel only 23 times. Apparently, there was still a lot of the old man in the new patriarch. And again, it kind of gives me hope that God is patient. God, you know, is long-suffering with us. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't write us off. Though we still sometimes see Jacob coming out. God says, man, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I want to continue to refine you and, and transform you into the image of my son is what we're all on that journey to be conformed to that image of his son. It's a process that I'm thankful God does not give up on us. Nevertheless, Jacob now, he, he makes the right decision to not go with Esau, even though it wasn't a good thing in kind of deceptively speaking to Esau. Now, understand, Seir was outside of the land that God was giving Israel. But, but Jacob simply needed to be honest with Esau and, and trust the Lord with the results, right? Didn't need to turn to his former crafty character in trying to get around this now with Esau. He needs to be honest with him. Tell him what's going on. Say, God's given me a different land, a different place for us to settle down in. Well, moving on to verse 17, notice this. 
And, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. So instead of going south where Esau lived down in Edom, Jacob traveled west and he camps on the eastern side of the Jordan River in Sukkoth. You can look at what Jacob is doing and may not really fault him here. He doesn't seem to be doing anything too wrong. But is this the place that the Lord has been leading Jacob to go? See, I think we can kind of surmise that God had and desired Jacob to return back to Bethel, the place that Jacob first encountered God. It tells us in Genesis 31 verse 13, he says, I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land when he was still in Haran with Laban and, and return to the land of your family. And then in Genesis 35, 1, think, see this is gonna, we're gonna hear this later on, right? Again, makes us realize perhaps where God was really intending Jacob to be. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. See again, Jacob seems to be a little distracted perhaps by his own flesh and his own wisdom. And he's allowing himself to stray kind of from that place where it would seem God was desiring him to be, that place of Bethel. You know, we may justify an action we were taking and think, listen, it's not so wrong. I haven't gone down to Seir with, with Esau. I'm not straying too far away. I'm, I'm right here next to the land of our fathers. I'm just on the other side of the river. And we can justify our action thinking, this isn't too wrong. But yet, are we coming up short of full obedience to what God has called us to? Because if we are walking in partial obedience, then guess what? We're not going to experience that fullness of blessing that God has for us. Jacob has made his way probably about 98% of the journey down from Haran. He's gone about 98% of the way but he stops about 2% short. And it's not gonna go well for Jacob here. This is not the place that God is, has for him. In fact, because of Jacob's pattern of coming up short, we're gonna see a steep price that he and his family are sadly gonna pay in the next chapter. But notice here now, verse 18, <clears throat> then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So now he's making his way when he came from Pananaram, and he pitched his tent before this city. Verse 19, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. So after being in Sukkoth for a time, Jacob now moves into Canaan, the land that was promised to Israel, the land of his fathers. But he arrives in Shechem, and, and we're still not seeing this as being at the direction of the Lord. This isn't God saying, here's where I want you to be, Jacob. God hasn't really been speaking clearly to Jacob at this time because Jacob's still kind of coming up short, walking in partial obedience, not full obedience. And notice, Jacob pitches his tent before the city, much like Lot did. And you remember how well that went for Lot. Wasn't a good place to be. Interestingly, here in Shechem is the place that Jacob went and dug a well that Jesus would later in John's gospel, chapter four, would arrive at and meet with the Samaritan woman by the well that Jacob had dug. We saw that encounter there. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? So just kind of an interesting historical moment. This is when Jacob makes his way into the land of Canaan here again and he finds himself at Shechem where he digs a well. He's getting himself established here but he pitches his tent here now before the city. Now, one positive thing we can note about Jacob here is that he erects an altar to the Lord and he calls it El Elohi Israel, which means the mighty God is the God of Israel. 
The mighty God is the God of Israel. This seems to be the first altar that Jacob built since Bethel, and it's the first time that Jacob now uses his new name, right? This is his name. We think, we always hear Israel, we go, oh, the nation, there's no nation of Israel exactly yet. This is his name. And what he's, what he's announcing, what he's declaring is that the mighty God is my God. He's, he's the God of Israel. But there's still a lot of Jacob in him as this altar should have been built, built at Bethel, the house of God. Again, Jacob is that picture of our dual nature that's often feuding back and forth. We have a few good steps, a few good declarations, but then we still oftentimes are trusting more in ourselves. We still get fiercely kind of independent and want to choose our way rather than the Lord's way. And there's these two natures that are feuding. See, Jacob chooses comfort and worldly pleasures in Shechem, though he wants to worship God. And he's not gonna fully hear from God until several years later when God directly intervenes, as we saw in chapter 35, verse one, where God directly intervenes and calls him to go to Bethel. Tragically, he's gonna have to deal with the events of Genesis 34 first as a consequence to this partial obedience. James Boyce said, again, you may be like Jacob. You may be in a wrong place and even on a slippery slide to spiritual ruin, but so long as you have your altar, so long as you're meeting with and faithfully worshiping God with other believers, the anchor of faith is secured and God will use that contact to hold you and bring you back to a place of full blessing. Jacob is here looking to worship God and it's there that he's just kind of finding that little anchor that's keeping him from just greater tragedy. God's gonna eventually call him back to the place of fuller obedience. But look at this tragedy now that we see unfolding in Shechem in chapter 34. Now, Briscoe says in his commentary, the history of mankind is a sad story of violence. From the earliest times, man is opposed man, Brother has found himself in conflict with brother. One need look no further than the world's first two brothers to find a murder and a victim. For many years, it was fondly believed that man was improving and would eventually eradicate the world's ills. But the First World War was as damaging to that theory as it was to individual lives. Then along came the Second World War, which was responsible for an average of one million deaths per month. Instead of ending all wars, those two major confrontations introduced a period in which over 20 million people lost their lives in the space of 40 years. The threat of nuclear holocaust and indiscriminate terrorist activity have done nothing to encourage the belief that man has recovered from his frightening penchant for violence. In fact, at the time of writing, the most popular movies are those that depict explicit violence on a grand scale, often aligned to a misbegotten nationalistic spirit. Violence is here to stay, and it has much to say about the condition of the human heart. Yet, as we go through this, it reveals to us all the more, I would add, our need for a Savior to redeem and transform us. A Savior that is our only hope from the ills of this world. We'll look at chapter 34. I have a sad, sordid story here. Verse one. Now, Donna, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Dinah here seems to be the only daughter of Jacob. She comes from the... Uh, from Leah, again, the, the wife that perhaps seemed to be a little bit, you know, on the outside of things, perhaps because of that, Dinah didn't really experience that father's love. So she goes out, she's looking for some friendship here, probably needing a little break from all her brothers as well. So she goes out to see the other daughters in the land. Now, once again, this was not the place that she should have been looking to make friends. 
Shechem is that picture of the world, the place we're called to come out of and be separate from. Chances of finding the right people in the wrong places is not a good one. Again, just ask a lot about that. And so Dinah goes to an area that she had no business being, all because of a father that was leading and walking in partial obedience right now. Well, verse five says, well, let me just clear this up too because what we see is, is Dinah going out and the, the prince of the king, the son of Hamor, sees her and he takes her. He violates her. This is, this is a rape that we see. I mean, the Bible does not cover over anything like this. Sadly, it's, it's revealing to us, again, that sordid state of humanity apart from the Lord. And, and Dan is raped in this scene and in this story here. It's a sad and tragic one. But notice this in verse five, and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them in verse eight, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Verse 12, ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. You know, it's a pattern that we see in scripture, you know, uh, again, revealing that kind of fallen nature of man where they saw and they took. You read through the book of Genesis and you see that pattern over and over again. They saw and they took. And again, it's this, this pattern of, of people following, you know, that kind of sinful impulse apart from coming to the Lord and, and knowing him and we're seeing this sinful impulse being played out here in in Shechem now rather than dealing with this tragedy sadly Jacob it says kind of holds his peace verse um verse five tells us that Jacob just kind of held his peace there so there's a time to hold your peace and a time to confront and fight evil now with Jacob taking a back seat it's going to compound the problem now notice what we see Hamor doing. Nobody's calling this evil for what it is. They're not coming out and saying, oh, my son did a terrible thing. They're not apologizing for it. They're not owning up to it. They're just trying to make things more lucrative for everyone. Well, my son really wants your daughter. How about we give you this and we just kind of enter in a partnership to some degree? You know, it's just like the enemy, isn't it, to try and convince you how good you'll have it if you follow him. See, verse 10, I mean, Hamer saying, hey, you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. They're all, they're all trying to throw it to Jacob. Listen, you're gonna stay here. Let's just enter in a partnership and everything's gonna be that much better for you exactly what the enemy would love us to think come into just partnership with me come and follow me a little bit let me just kind of lead your life a little bit and and you're gonna have much it's gonna be far more prosperous for you many people have bought into that lie thinking that they're gonna gain much and yet what they find is they ultimately lose everything satan is a father of lies He's a deceiver. And his only intent is your ruin. Now this should have been a big red light for Jacob. He saw through Esau's marriages, marrying the Canaanite woman, that it never went well for them. It was, they were problematic. 
Jacob should have recognized this, and now Hamer is basically saying, dwell with us and become a part of our society. But again, that wasn't God's plan. Yet Jacob is not where he should be, and the temptations and the distractions are only increasing. I've seen that play out so many times in, in people's lives where they know they're in a place that they should not be, and yet it just continues to perpetuate the problem. It's continuing to spin in this downward spiral of chaos because they're not where they should be. They're wondering, why is all these things happening? Because you're not walking in obedience to what the Lord has for you or where he would want you to be. And so Jacob is only getting further tempted and distracted by these things. Look at verse 13, but the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we'll consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you'll not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. Jacob's sons begin to basically take over now and kind of plot out the appropriate payback. And sadly, Jacob seems to be quite silent in all this, still holding his peace as we saw in verse five. Quite complicit in the matters. See, when God appointed heads to do not, or when God, David Guzik said this, when God appointed heads do not take appropriate leadership, it creates a void which is often filled sinfully. When those appointed by God do not take that appropriate place of leadership, it's gonna create that void which will often be filled sinfully. Jacob's not stepping up to the role that he should be taking here. As a father, as a patriarch, he's not fulfilling that role. And his sons are stepping in to do something very wrong. See, the plan of theirs is filled with ulterior motives. This is not a religious requirement that they were seeking to say, well, it's only this way that we can then enter. In a, they had no desire of entering in a partnership. This was revenge that they were seeking to carry out, malicious revenge. Look at verse 19. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And all the men said, Say what now? Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of a city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of a city. So Hamor and Shechem are, are thinking very materialistically here. I mean, this is some high stakes negotiating that's going on here. Circumcise yourselves and we're gonna become one. We're gonna be sharing in all these great things. It's not a light thing that's being asked of them. But again, Hamor and Shechem are being driven by looking at what they'll gain through this offer. In fact, Shechem is being driven by just that kind of soulish kind of love. This is not a love where he wanted to come alongside Dinah and be a, a husband to her. This was something he was looking at that would only truly satisfy him. There was that soulish kind of, my soul longs for her, is what his father said. Verse 25, now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, <laughs> no doubt, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, down his brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. This is where that saying, getting caught with your pants down, came from, I think, is right here. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain then and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. 
They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. It's sad that Jacob's sons here seemed more intent on revenge than actually caring for their sister. You know, we, we don't see anything really of Jacob or the brothers really coming alongside her. You know, revenge is that natural instinct of, or, or tendency of, of humankind. Some aren't interested in revenge. They're just more interested in even like just kind of getting one up on another person. It's not about getting equal sometimes or getting even. It's about I've got to make them pay. And that's what we see with down his brothers here stepping in. Simeon and Levi doing this work. Romans 12, verse 19 and 21 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm not saying there wasn't action to be taken here against the men of the city and, and against what was done to Dinah. There's no doubt God's already set up retribution in these kinds of matters. But these two brothers now took matters into their own hands and didn't really yield to what the Lord desired to do here. And so doing made things much worse. And look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and since I'm few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now poor Jacob here, right? He's, Jacob is more interested in what this sin might cause him to look like. He was more worried about his own reputation perhaps being tarnished than simply dealing with the sin itself. Jacob never was stepping in to deal with this. He's looking at, he's allowed his sons to step in and do this. He's kind of lacked that leadership. And now he's simply worried about, oh, you've made me look very bad now in front of others. When you fall into sin, do you worry about how it, make, how it might make you look? Do you worry about how that might affect your reputation. See, what we're called to do when we enter into sin is to own up to it, repent of it, ask God for forgiveness. That's always the first step to take. David showed that clearly in Psalm chapter 32. That when I stayed silent, man, my, my, my bones were like aching within when I confessed it, that's when David understood the grace and the mercy of the Lord. That's what we're called to do when we sin. We're not looking to hide it. We're not looking to keep it. We want to uh, keep it from others. We want to we confess that. We want to bring that to the Lord and to those that maybe are involved. Confess that and, and get right with that before the Lord. Now, interestingly, Jacob's last words to Simeon and Levi were not very favorable words. It says in, in Genesis 49, verse 5 and 7, if you want to turn over there, but I'll just read it real quick here. Genesis 49, verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty, he says, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Said they're they're cruel men. And so Jacob at that time of pronouncing that, you know, curse and blessing upon his children revealed that word to them at that time. Now, again, chapter 34 is an unsightly chapter. But again, the Bible never holds back on revealing the depravity of humanity. These examples are here to show us our hope is not to be found in people or in the systems of this world, our hope is only found in Jesus. And though these dark stories are found in God's word, they don't sugarcoat things, they don't hide things, they're not trying to reveal like, oh, it's great. These dark stories are found in God's word, but so that the ultimate story 
of a redeemer and savior can all the more shine through in how he comes to save fallen and depraved humanity. That's the ultimate story of the word of God. That is what we're thankful for. Well, let's see here. Do you have one more chapter in you, all of you? 804, how are we doing? Okay, let's cover chapter 35. We'll breeze through this. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So God now, as we had referenced earlier, now God calls out to Jacob. And he calls out to Jacob at a point when Jacob's family's really in crisis. See, the events of chapter 34 are to bring Jacob and his family to the place where Jacob first discovered God. And once again, it's to help him see his desperate need for God in all things and at all times. Because it was at Bethel, first of all, that Jacob made that commitment to God back in chapter 28, verse 20 to 22. Jacob will no doubt recognize how far he has gone from that. Remember what we read, in fact, just jump over there, Genesis 28, verse 20. Because here's what we see Jacob saying. Chapter 20, verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob made that strong commitment to the Lord prior. But there's been some waywardness Jacob will no doubt recognize how far he's kind of gone from that very commitment he made. He's needed to tell his family to put away foreign gods. They've drifted. He's not been the the man of God that he should be in the home. And it reminds me kind of what we read in Revelation 2, verse 2 to 5, saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember from where you have fallen. This is kind of that opportunity for Jacob to remember how far he's drifted, how far he's gone from the place of prior commitment to the Lord. God's desire to draw him back to that awareness of who he is and his need to live for him. And Jacob now is finally wisely instructing his family now. Notice what he says here. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. This is a great picture of the new life we receive in and through Jesus. Sandy Adams said this, These are the same three prerequisites we need to meet with God. First, put away your idols. Salvation is free, but you can't come to Jesus toting along a bag of other gods. Jesus won't save who he can't govern. Whatever it is you love more than God, put it away. And then, purify yourself. Wash in the blood of Jesus. Ask for a fresh cleansing. And then, change your garments. In other words, adopt a new perspective Learn to see yourself in Christ, a child of God. Shed your worldly attitudes. It's what we read in Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you do this, put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. That's the idea here now that Jacob is saying to his family, put away the foreign gods, purify yourselves and change your garments. Walk in that newness of life that God desires to give you. I like what Jacob says here. He says in, in, verse, um, in verse three, 
that God has been with me in the way which I have gone. Jacob's realizing, man, God's been with me. And it's only by the grace of God go I. God is always with us. And to that we are, we are ever grateful and thankful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I think far too often we fail to see the hand of the Lord that has protected us and provided for us along the journey that we oftentimes don't even see or recognize. But again, just because he is with us doesn't mean he will bless every way we go. There's a way that leads to blessing and it's the way in which we follow the Lord in full obedience, that which Jacob is learning to do. Because here's a man that's been walking in partial obedience, not experiencing the full blessing of God. Our desire should always be to go his way rather than our way. Jacob is learning that. So, verse four, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with them. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Verse eight, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Now what does Jacob do with all the old stuff? They brought all the foreign gods, the earrings which are in their ears, all, all these things that were kind of a mark of, of the, the false deities. What does he do with them? Buries them. I love that. He just hides them under the terebinth tree. He, he buries them. That's what we need to do. See that your old stuff, your old life has truly been buried with Christ. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Bury that old man. Put it down. Give no place to it. Live in that newness of life in and through Jesus Christ. So notice there, we, we read, um, let's see here yeah in verse 5 notice it says the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them you know Jacob deserved to be kind of hung out to dry didn't he but yet God was with them as Jacob's already announced and, and everywhere he went God was putting a protection around him where he placed this fear and terror upon all the cities of Jacob. People would see Jacob and go, that guy's untouchable. Don't mess with those people that are God's people, essentially. God in his grace is protecting him. In verse seven, Jacob now builds that altar and proclaims that God is, he says, he called it El Bethel, meaning God of the house of God. See, that's the place that God showed up to him. Jacob knows it's not his place. He's not the boss here. This is God's place. And more so, he's saying, he, he's more so stating his need for God and not just a location. He's not calling it Bethel, which is house of God. He's saying this is El Bethel. This is for the God of the house of God. Putting the emphasis upon the Lord and his need for him now. Now we're gonna notice some things in this chapter. Jacob is getting things, you know, right with God. He's walking in fuller obedience, right? There's gonna be this rededication now to the Lord in Jacob's life. Yet, what we'll see in this chapter is that he's gonna continue to go through some real hardships. Here we see Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. I remember Jacob was closely linked to Rebecca his mother. Jacob was like mama's boy. He had a special bond with his mom. And this is his mom's nurse. This is kind of like that last sort of link to his mother. And, and it's very possible that Deborah was very instrumental in raising Jacob. She was an important figure in his life. This is a big loss to him. Even though he's now you know, rededicating and, and committing his life to the Lord in a, in a greater way, there's still gonna be difficulties that Jacob is gonna face. 
But again, there are opportunities for Jacob to learn to trust in even greater measure now in the Lord. Where all these other things are, are gonna be gone, Jacob's only course of action is to trust in the Lord, which is what God always wants from us to begin with. Notice here in verse nine, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So God confirms the covenant with Jacob again, using now his new name again, Israel. And that name Israel means ruled by God. Jacob meant supplanter, deceiver, but now he's to be a man that's ruled, governed by God. That's what Israel means. The same covenant that was given to Abraham and Isaac is now given to Israel. See, Jacob marks this monumental occasion now with a pillar. What does he do? He pours a drink offering on it pours oil on it. That drink offering was symbolic of dedication. Jacob is showing his commitment now and this dedication to the Lord saying, God, I'm yours. I, I, I truly know how I need to follow you, how I need to trust you. Oh, there'll still be some learning to do. But Jacob is coming to that point that we all need to say, my life is yours. I want to be governed by God. See, Jacob's learning to live a little less like Jacob and a lot more like Israel. That's a turning point here in his life. In the days ahead, he'll be able to come back to this pillar and be reminded uh, of this dedication, that he's, this commitment he's made to the Lord. Verse 16, then they journey from Bethel and and, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. Verse 18, and so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, Ephrath that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Again, what do we see after this fresh recommitment and rededication to the Lord? Jacob is experiencing some hardships, some real trials. You see, we're never guaranteed when we give our lives to Jesus, we're never guaranteed a comfy journey. If you're giving your life to the Lord because what you expect him to do in the days ahead, rather than just simply coming to him for what he's already done for you and your complete need for him, you're gonna be greatly disillusioned and discouraged when trials come. Now we don't give our life to the Lord so that everything will be comfortable. We give our life to the Lord because he's the only one that sees us through to our ultimate end, which is heaven. He's the only one that paid the penalty for our sins. He's the only one that has redeemed us and has given us life in him. And the, the few trials that we experience in this life with the Lord I think pale in comparison to living in this world apart from the Lord. We're blessed because we have the, the blessed hope in and through Jesus. But let's be sure that we're giving our lives to the Lord and we're living for him because of our complete need for him, because of the fact that we're lost apart from him. 
We're perishing apart from him. If I have to go through a few little trials in this life and hardships or heartaches, so be it. Because we know this life is temporary. And we know what he ultimately has reserved for us. Praise the Lord. He is enough. Just like Jacob said earlier, I have all. I have enough when I have the Lord. Now it's interesting that 2,000 years after Benjamin was born, another child would be born in Bethlehem. Benjamin was first named Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. But then Jacob said, no, I'm gonna call him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And just as that child was born some 2,000 years later in Bethlehem, Jesus too would be that son of sorrow as he would be nailed to a cross and he would take the very judgment and wrath of God. But yet, he would ultimately be the son of his right hand as he would rise again and ascend to the Father and be seated in a place of authority. Praise the Lord. What a great picture we see here of our Lord and Savior. Verse 21. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar, and it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Sadly here, what we see in verse 22 is that Reuben overstepped his grounds and took something that was not his. Cost him greatly. As the firstborn, Reuben the firstborn, the one that you would think would be the rightful heir to be the, the one that the Messiah would come from. But yet he forfeited that. He only got a sandwich named after him. Could have been so much better. And though Jacob is quiet about this now, he too is gonna reserve that kind of strong judgment for him later on in chapter 49 when he speaks to his sons one last time and pronounces that uh, blessing upon them or, or curse upon them. In verse three of chapter 49, Reuben, he says, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, yet unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch, unstable as water, the firstborn, yet forfeited these for a, a, a moment of pleasure, it would seem. Perhaps looking to secure his rightful place. And yet he gave it all up. Well, we see the whole line of Jacob here now announced in, in verses um, 23 to 26, the 12 tribes of Israel eventually, and look at verse 27, then Jacob came to his father Isaac in Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Again, as we often see in scripture, at that point of death, there's reconciliation that takes place. We saw it with with Isaac and Ishmael at the death of Abraham, that reconciliation of these two brothers coming together at that point of death. We see it again with Jacob and Esau as they come together, partnering together to, to bury their father Isaac now. And the greatest of reconciliations is seen at another death, the death at Calvary. Romans 5 verse 10 11 says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Praise the Lord for that. We've been reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. May we live in him. May we continue to be surrendered to him, living less like Jacob and more like ones that are 
governed by God. All right, amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to be able to be here tonight to just come and worship you and, and to take in your word. And God, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight, but I pray, as always, Lord, you, you would just really cause your word to take root in our lives and even these next few days. As we go from here, may we just kind of chew on this a little bit, meditate on it. May you continue to bring to remembrance the things that we've looked at tonight and, and instruct us and encourage us, challenge us through this word here tonight. Things that maybe stood out, areas that maybe we need to deal with and get right with you or things that we've needed to hear uh, of encouragement tonight. That God, you're with us in the way. Lord, all these things that we've learned, I pray that you would use it and strengthen us in you. Just go with us now. We ask this in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.